Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How are you doing today? I'm good. The sun is shining. It's absolutely gorgeous today. I hope it continues. I think we're completely spoiled in Scotland just now, aren't we? It's, it's like a drought for Scotland. Have you seen that really, really funny picture that's going around the internet at the moment, which is Scotland in summer, rain pouring down. Scotland in winter, rain pouring down. Scotland in spring, <laughs> rain pouring down. Scotland in lockdown, beautiful sunny blue skies. <laughs> Did you not feel like that as a teenager? I always remember the month of May being the most glorious, perfect weather when you were sitting in zones. And then as soon as, well, on the States, as soon as you broke up, it was too really too hot to go outside. I remember in May just being so frustrated by the weather outside. So it feels a bit like that. It's taking me back to my teenage years. So this week we have um, a text from Karen Lord called At Sea, which is part of the Freedom Papers. That were a whole set of texts commissioned around the subject of freedom by the Edinburgh Book Festival. And then we're going to follow it up with a Rita Dove poem that I love called Dawn Revisited. Do you want to kick us off, Claire? Sure. At Sea by Karen Lord. I was born in an independent nation. I have always been a Barbadian, expecting no more nor less than these 430 square kilometres of land. I did not experience the moment when our borders shrank from outpost of empire to microstate. But when I stand on the coast, I am unbalanced. The immensity of ocean in my sight demands a continent of land beneath my feet and I have only a rock to stand on. My vertigo increases as borders tighten. The pleasure of a plane trip has become the terror of the airport, from the price and processing of the visa to the forgotten full-sized tube of toothpaste in your carry-on. Flying is now a miasma of anxiety resulting from the imperfect management of micropanics. The juggling of shoes, belts, bladeless multi-tool, snacks, laptop and dignity. That's before you leave the ground. There will be plenty of time en route to consider a new suite of potential panics at destination. I return to the coast. I tried out paddling, first a kayak, then a surf ski. I asked my coach if it was possible to paddle to St Vincent another microstate and our nearest neighbour, of whom our clear horizon holds neither hint nor shadow of a promise. He looked doubtful. Inter-island races do exist, but a launch from our shores would face many hours of open ocean with large, multi-directional swells. I didn't think I could do it, but I wanted to know if it could be done. I started paddling for fun and fitness, but eventually I admitted to myself that I needed to claim the wider ocean to compensate for a land that could not match my scope of freedom. I didn't think I could do it. Long before the anxiety of flight, I lived with a phobia of depths and dark water. Parents and teachers recited the common Bajan dictum, the sea ain't got no back door. And this became the society-approved box for exhibiting my unvoiced qualms 
and existential dread. Later, weary of boxes, I pushed back, countered it with another saying, Your fear is only adrenaline seeking orders. What shall I order my adrenaline to do? Do I fight or fly, struggle or soar? This is a test. I return to the sea. I do not paddle for the beauty of the bay, though beauty sometimes startles me. The flash of a leaping shoal of fish, the clear blues that draw the sight down and down to the white gold sand, the light kiss or spitting snarl of the wind. I narrow my focus to the swells, the rhythm of the stroke and my body. I balance the forces of nature against my will to go forward. I am flying in dual element, like the fish skimming the water surface. I paddle to escape the limits that terror has placed upon me and many others. I paddle to go where I want, when I want, and as I please. Should we stop there? Yeah. That's just such a beautiful piece of writing. Yeah. It's lovely to read. And even before we get to the sea, I was thinking as you were reading, trying to sort of figure out who this woman is, even before she's sort of gotten to the water's edge. I'm trying to figure out why she's there. And there's so much in that in terms of panic and vertigo. And it seems so much about fear. So it's such a huge contrast to this description of she has of herself on the water. The idea that borders make her panicked is a really interesting one, particularly for just now, isn't it? And the idea that it gets worse as the parameters change or the parameters tighten. And in a way, you would almost think that that would give her more security, more certainty. But she seems to find it panic-inducing. Travel is so much more stressful somehow. I mean, I guess, just now I was going to say, but I guess maybe we don't have that much to compare it to. So, you know, when I was traveling in my 20s on my own with a piece of hand luggage, it seemed really easy to sort of swirl through airports and with a passport. I mean, I guess it also depends on which passport you have. So I very rarely am having to apply for visas with an American passport. So I feel quite lucky that way. But then, you know, increasingly with a family or traveling with a larger group, things are more complicated. You're not responsible for just what's in your own luggage or your hand luggage. You've got to think about lots of other people and then make sure that they're safe and fed and have all the requisite snacks. And so traveling has become a huge stress I would say in a way that it wasn't you know I loved doing it when I was 20. I still love doing it but it just requires a huge amount of preparation and then when you add in all these things that she describes you know that idea of what have I got in my carry-on what has everybody else got in their carry-on shoes belt that sort of stress of taking I felt her stress you know taking off your shoes and belt to get through the conveyor for me even if I've got loads of time is a hugely stressful moment I don't know about you but even thinking about it makes me feel anxious just now yeah I would say I now think about what I'm going to wear to try and avoid having to do that in a way that I never used to I mean you kind of that's what makes me think of when reading those first few paragraphs or listening to you read the first few paragraphs is just that kind of stress of you know that movement and so that's what makes me think that's brought her to the rock that she's standing on looking out you know that she's looking for yeah. a different way out you know than the usual one which is to hop on a plane and go somewhere it made me wonder as well about how old she was yeah because for me I definitely get more anxious about traveling the older I get things that 
wouldn't have caused me any anxiety at all at 20 as you said now I'm thinking ahead and planning and part of that I guess is that the circumstances and way in which we travel Mm. has probably changed significantly over that time it did make me think oh I wonder how I wonder how old she is I I wonder if she's a similar age to me I wonder too well I don't know about you but I know my parents take so much more time you know they, they prepare over prepare to the point where sometimes years ago you know my parents would insist I leave for the airport well before I need like an hour before I needed to and I would find it really frustrating at the time because I just used to think well you've got more time than I do but again I I wonder if you're right I wonder if it's just as you get older if you find things more and more anxiety producing and you're you're aware of all the things that could go wrong whereas in your 20s you just kind of rock up and hope everything's okay one of the things that I think is really nice that we do in our open book groups is not do huge amounts of research about the authors, which is really unlike lots of other book groups. And I think that's really nice in some ways because we, we get to sort of surmise who the voice is or, 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 and not know. So in this case, I agree with you. I think she's someone about my age, and maybe that's just because it's me that's reading it, but that's someone who's been through a younger life where they just moved around a lot and now is looking looking more inwardly in a way or looking to the places that they know. Because she says, I return to the coast. So obviously it's somewhere, you know, she knows. But equally, she says, when I stand on the coast, I'm unbalanced. So I don't really know why she's returned to a place that makes her feel unbalanced. Maybe because she's about to tell us that she wants to get in the sea. I don't know. But it also feels to me a little bit that she's the sort of person who likes to challenge herself. You know, she likes to push herself. She talks about pushing herself to first the kayak, then the surf ski, and she's got a coach. So she's not just sort of hired one on the beach and gone for a putter around. She's sort of pushing herself quite hard. Um, And I wonder if part of this making herself return to the coast is part of her personality where she likes to take herself out of her comfort zone, which doesn't seem to fit with her her fear of, of the travel, but. I don't know. I'm speculating. Well, she's talking about that kind of, what does she say? She's looking for the ocean to compensate for a land that can't match her scope of freedom. So she's definitely looking for a kind of freedom. But I don't know about you too. If you're kind of frightened of something, sometimes the only way to overcome it is just to go do something even braver. If you can't face the, the phobia that you have or you, you don't want to or you can't afford to, I suppose, you know, if that's travel, then maybe it's the only other answer is to do something else that's daring. Maybe what's unbalancing is the smallness of the land because it is a small 430 square kilometres of land Mm. so juxtaposed so starkly against just the sheer vastness of the ocean and maybe that's what's making her feel unbalanced. It's funny because I always think wrongly I think, I think in fact it's definitely wrongly but I always assume that people who live by the sea don't have this fear of deep water because they grow up with it brings to mind all those images from the National Geographic or whatever you might have. I certainly looked at as a little girl thinking, oh, people who live on the sea are just desperately comfortable with being on open water and understand the risks are sort of inherent in the way that the risks of walking across a busy street in New York City are also inherent for someone who's grown up in the city. So reading that, you know, that she's a person who lived with a phobia of deep and dark water is a surprise on some level to me. And yet, when we look at, you know, when I first went to visit Ling, which is my favourite hidey hole for... That's exactly what I was going to say. It reminds me of that story you told me about your first trip to Ling. Yeah, but learning that fishermen there don't swim. Well, I asked, I asked, and it's in one of my first poems. And I asked why, eventually asked one of the fishermen, why is it you don't swim? 
And he said, if you find yourself in the sea, too much has already gone wrong. It, it's basically better to have a quick death than to struggle. So, you know, I was shocked at that. And I know, I know that's not necessarily true. And I feel like having told that story so many times, it feels a bit of a caricature. But I think it, it, in a generation above ours, it was very true. So I know I'm wrong about that idea that, you know, people who live with water are at ease with it in some way. And so for me, it feels like Karen is trying to overcome that huge phobia rather than the one about traveling. One about deep water feels much more stronger and bigger to me than the idea of a fear of getting on a plane. I don't know about you. I think one thing you can say about people who live by the sea is that they always seek out the sea. They always want to go back to the sea. I grew up on the coast, the northeast coast of Scotland. And certainly for me, when I spend too long away from the water, I'm definitely drawn back to it and sort of energised by that windy walk along the beach that is so reminiscent of my childhood. And do you have a kind of respect for it, maybe that others wouldn't, you know, because you're aware of what can happen? Or do you think you're more at ease with it? Um, I think I am more wary of it in the sense of there's certain things that I just wouldn't do. So I wouldn't go into the water on my own. You know, I would always have someone on the beach or be with someone or, you know, is that because of stories or things that happened when you were growing yeah, up? I think, I think just because it can look very benign, but, you know, there's always a lurking danger. I think something something about the coldness of the sea as well in Scotland, that the, it can be a beautiful hot day and you can go into the sea and it can be absolutely freezing and that can really throw you and throw your judgment and throw your decision making and throw your ability kind of to look after yourself. So things like that. I mean, I've, I've said to you before, right, hope somebody's going with you. And you always say, yeah, yeah, if I'm swimming, someone's with me. But if I'm just walking in, I would do that on my own. But I'm just more, um, I think, risk averse in relation to the sea. You know, I'm always the one when if we're on a, a family trip and kids want to hire a pedalo or something, I'm always the one going, well, you have to put your life jackets on. And they're looking at me as if to say, are you mad? <laughs> if you're going to be pedaling out of your depth, someone could fall off. Do you want to read the next section? Yeah. Recently, I visited the National Archives to do a little family research and found my great-grandmother's marriage certificate. Her father's name, mark, and profession were recorded. He was of the first generation of the free, and he was a fisherman. Did he go to sea to avoid even the memory of bondage to land? Or was it simply the lure of paid work, the same need that later called his daughter's husband to Panama? Many Barbadians went to build the canal, because outposts of empire are no more immune to lean times than microstates. Now there's no empire, and far fewer Panamas in this age of tightening borders, and so I, descendant of a fisherman, decide to find freedom at sea. Choosing the sea gives my adrenaline orders. My coach compliments me on my willingness to push myself to greater challenges. I take the compliment gladly and without guilt. To be seen where you are, to have your work and efforts acknowledged, even appreciated, why does that feel like freedom too? Is it another trick of adrenaline, a mere rush of chemicals, or is it a kind of thanksgiving for the presence of flow and the taste of transcendence? This is my transcendence, to excel for no reason but the pursuit of excellence, to be and not have to justify my being, to go where I want, when I want, and as I please. But sometimes the ocean will not permit entry, closing the border between sea and earth with pounding surf and surging currents. 
My coach says it's wiser to pause, rethink the exercise, and launch from another shore on another day. Even when the sea appears kind, I must be wary. Welcome is an agreement between guest and host, a thin line balancing the gift that does not burden and the gratitude that leaves none beholden. Welcome is always revocable, and not only with the sea. Law and politics imply that the land belongs to us, but in truth, we belong to the land. We are creatures in a habitat of food, shelter, and family that we protect and that protects us. If disasters, natural or man-made, overturn that stability, we must seek a new habitat, which is hard when your land is a microstate and borders are tightening and fear is everywhere. Irrational anxieties are echoes of real fears grounded in the futures we cannot control. I fear that this small rock I am balancing on will disappear and that I will not be allowed to build a fresh habitat and a new belonging. I fear that the sea and the empty horizon will be all that is left to me, and I am teaching myself to fall in love with the ocean and its mutability, so that when change comes at last, I will not be left drowning. This is a test of my strength and resilience. This is me choosing freedom, real and symbolic, in all the ways I can. I love this as a kind of statement of choice, kind of a statement of intention in some way, rather than letting the world happen to you. It feels like, particularly at this time, it's lovely to read the idea that you have agency, that you get to choose, even in what feels like a very small way. And the idea as well that, that she's gone back and researched her distant relatives to take strength from his choices and taking hold of his situation. And she feels that that's followed down through the genes to her. And in some way, she draws some strength and power from that. And that's a really lovely idea. I wanted just to go back to this line that choosing the sea gives my adrenaline orders. I love that idea because as someone who's taken up sea swimming this year, I really recognize that idea that when you arrive at the sea, particularly in the middle of winter, it's freezing. The water you know is sort of five or six degrees. And yet there is something about overcoming that part of your brain that says, or that part of your body that's screaming at you to get out. It's that kind of idea of being able to manage yourself, if that makes sense, in a way that doesn't feel like you should be able to. Yeah, I mean, I love the idea that you can give your adrenaline orders mm. in whatever context you find it. It's just a really powerful sentiment, I think, to say, OK, this is happening to me, to accept that this adrenaline is coursing through your veins for whatever reason, whether, yeah. you know, it's cold water or a difficult situation you have to face and to actually say, you know, I am going to give this adrenaline orders and this is what we're going to do today. And I think that's like incredibly powerful. I think that's what she's doing. She's she's continuing to go back to prove to herself that she can over, not just overcome fear is too easy to say, overcome her own physiological response to that fear, which is different. And what about this idea, sometimes the ocean will not permit mm -hmm. entry? Is that the ocean itself not permitting entry? Is that a reference to weather or unsafe conditions? Or is that a reference to her assessment on the day that it's not the right day for her to go in? For me, it's about the weather and about how that's the thing she can't control, you know. In some ways, I think, and they, th they say this about hill climbers and rock climbers and things as well, you've got to be really respectful of the thing that you're engaging with. And she does say that too, right? You know, even yeah. when the sea's kind, she has to be wary. 
it's that same rock, you know, down the river that I was going in. It might look kind, but you've got to be really careful. So it's a kind of, it's the same in some ways as human relationships, right? You have to be incredibly respectful of the person that you're dealing with and recognize that they've got their own stuff going on or things don't always seem the way they are. But yeah, I, I think it's about that thing that she can, all she can control is her own response and her ability to go in. But, you know, some days it's just not open. It's not open for business, just like you shouldn't be climbing hills in a snowstorm unless you want to not come off them. I love the idea that there's an agreement between her and the sea. Welcome is an agreement between guest and host. It feels like it's a gift from one to the other and a, a sort of pact that you have. You treat the sea well and it'll treat you well. I love the way she, she draws that between the way that we understand welcome between people, right? So I, it, it immediately made me think of people who come to visit and stay too long. Or It reminds me of that, is it Billy Collins' poem? Yeah. About uh, after three days... Guests are like fish. After three days, they begin to smell yeah. or something something along those lines. And it's always tricky because when my family come, they come from so far away. And, you know, I'm always, they can't just stay for three days. And it always makes me laugh because about on day four, my mum will say, oh, I'm sorry, you know what they say about guests and fish and um, can't come halfway across the world for three days. So here we are. So we've obviously over time come up with coping tactics for that or having a day away or something else. But I love that idea that the human understanding of welcome, that dance that we do, even when, you know, you have a cup of tea with someone, recognizing when it's time to go. Or, you know, you'll you'll have had that experience too, possibly, even with me, when, you know, we're sitting having a cup of tea and you think, okay, time to move on. I've got other things to get on with. But the person that you're having the tea with doesn't recognize that and keeps wettering on. And then the other thing that I really wanted to touch on before we move on is that idea that we think that the land belongs to us. And in fact, we belong to it. And I know that's a kind of really easy environmentally sort of message that we hear all the time, you know, that we think we own things, but we don't. But I love it when it connects with this idea of her trying to connect or take part in something that she feels is so much bigger than herself. And I think there's a lot more discussion around that sort of idea now, both in an environmental context, but just generally over who owns the land and who should own the land. One of the things I found really interesting moving here, and I still haven't quite got my head around, is that idea of the right to roam in Scotland. You know, the idea that you, you know, because being an American and thinking about all the caricatures of Americans and their guns and this is my land, we have a really different sense of ownership. You know, that once you own it, literally nobody has the right to come on it. And you have the right to keep people off it. And having lived in the UK now longer than I've lived in the States, that seems so foreign to me. But I still, you know, I'm, I'm a keen hill runner, as you know, or kind of love long my long runs in the hills. I still can't get my head around the fact that I'm running through other people's land and I'm allowed to. It's something that's kind of ingrained in me. That unless it's a national park, which is how we do things in the States, you're not really allowed to be on other people's land. But there is much more of a sense in Scotland that even if you own something, you don't really, you know, other people have the right to use it. There's certain exceptions and there's ways to keep people safe on your land so people don't have the right to go everywhere. But certainly there's very strong precedents to allow people to walk across yeah. land, you know, as long as they're not doing damage or, you know, risking your livestock or whatever. But yeah, that's uh, it's interesting. It's never really crossed my mind before that that would be anything other than the case. I wonder if we should move on to the Rita Dove poem. It's called Dawn Revisited by Rita Dove. Imagine you wake up with a second chance. The blue jay hawks his pretty wares, and the oak still stands, spreading glorious shade. 
If you don't look back, the future never happens. How good to rise in sunlight, in the prodigal smell of biscuits, eggs and sausage on the grill. The whole sky is yours to write on, blown open to a blank page. Come on, shake a leg. You'll never know who's down there frying those eggs if you don't get up and see. As an American, I feel I should just clarify one thing right off. Biscuits doesn't mean cookies. <laughs> Biscuits in America are kind of savory scone, really. A bit like a cheese scone, or, but lighter. Thank you for that. Yeah, because, you know, even though I'm eating cookies for breakfast this morning, most Americans don't eat cookies for breakfast. You're going to get in such trouble with your cake and cookies for breakfast. <laughs> I'm going to be saying, as soon as lockdown's over, I'm going to be round with a bag of granola or something. Why do you think I'm doing all that swimming and hill running? Did you ever hear of a shivery bite? Do you know what a shivery bite is? No. It's what you have as soon as you get out of water. Like if you've been swimming or been in the sea or it's just a little snack that warms you up again. Oh, and it's some, it's not a hot drink. No, it's a it's a piece of food. So when I was young and I would go swimming and my maybe my grandmother would be there, she'd be like, time to come out now for your shivery bite. Oh, I might have to take that up. Something they're really hopeful about this poem, I think. Yeah, and I, I don't necessarily feel like it's a one-moment instant, like a changing point. I feel like it could be every day, you know, that every day you wake up with a second chance. It's that idea that the, you get to ch make decisions, you get to change things every day, or you get to decide things anew every day, if that makes sense. Um, I love that, come on, shake a leg, you know. I would love to, I should probably just write it across my window or something so that in the morning, so I just get out of bed. But here's the one, the, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this poem, because I think it links with that idea of how we change our lives for the better, how we address things we don't want to in the way that Karen Lord does. But the line that I really wanted to talk about is this idea that the, if you don't look back, the future never happens. I don't know what it means. I love it. And I think it's true. But trying, I've been trying overnight to think about how you unpack it. It's that idea of, for me, that idea of tomorrow never comes. Don't look back, don't have regrets, don't mourn what might have been, but try and focus on being in the present. If that's the case, the past is gone and the future is the present. And that idea of, again, harking back, my granny's appearing a lot this morning, <laughs> but she would always say, you know, don't, don't wish yourself away. Don't wish your life away. Because when I was younger, I'd always be going, oh, I can't wait till Tuesday, it's gym club. Or I can't wait till we go on holiday and go. And my granny would always say, whoa, whoa, don't wish your life away. And I think for me, it's that idea of just try and enjoy where you are and what you're doing for now. That's so positive. I'm so glad you said that. Because I was thinking about it the opposite in terms of, you know, if you don't understand your history and you don't have the capacity to change what you do. But actually, I like your version much better. <laughs> and it fits much better with the poem, I think, which is this idea that every day we've got to be where we are. You know, you've got to get on down there and eat those eggs and see what's waiting for you, rather than... It felt incongruous in some way to be this person lying in bed, looking back at the past and sort of rummaging through it so that you get a better future. So that's why I couldn't understand the line. So I, I think you're right. And that idea that the whole sky is yours to ride on, you get to decide everything is a complete blank slate. You get to... You get to decide yourself every morning without reference to what's come. It's a lovely idea. I think for me, this poem is so full of possibilities. Mm. It's that whole idea of it's within your control to make of the day what you will. And I think you're right. I don't think that's always true. And I don't think it's as black and white as that statement I've just made <laughs> paints it. But I think even the possibility of it being within your control 
is a really positive thing. And thinking back to the text, to Karen Lords at Sea, that ability to choose every day to face the thing, you know, whatever it is, to go a bit further, to listen a bit harder to whether you're being welcomed into the sea, I think, is that thing that Rita Dove's getting at, which is, you know, you get to decide every day what you're doing. And you get to decide how you manage whatever obstacles come, whether they're from internal or external. You respond that whole thing of we can't change the, what happens around us or the behavior of other people, but we can just what we have control over is our own responses to it, which feels like in some ways that's what she's saying. You get to be in the moment if you choose to be in the moment. You get to choose how to respond to that moment. And so, you know, you're not you're not waking up thinking of the list of things you have to do. You get to choose to listen to the Blue Jay and you can choose to smell the biscuits. But I think that idea that she starts the poem with the word imagine is her message that she doesn't actually think that's what I'm doing at the moment. And I do need to shake a leg and make a change. And, and if I want that hope that she's offering, then I need to actually start to believe that you wake up each day with a second chance. It's that same sentiment of giving your adrenaline marching orders. And in this case, it's not adrenaline, but it's choosing how you go about or attack the day or think about your life. So it feels like it's about, again, being conscious of managing things. It feels in this podcast, the things that we've read have all been about us having that power and having that energy and that strength and that choice. Which is a, um, which is a lovely thing at the moment yeah. when we feel like so many choices are taken away from us for good reasons, but taken away from us. So it's good to be reminded that we can still make small choices about how we choose to respond to that or what we do with what time or things that we have, even in this period. It feels like a nice reminder. It feels positive rather than frustrating to not be able to, to do all the things that we're used to doing. That's yeah, been a really nice reminder. Should we have a chat about what's been happening this week? Yeah. We've, um, we've had our usual Zoom groups, creative writing and shared reading, some of which have really looked at the subject of futures, the Scottish Book Trust theme of futures this year, which has been really fun and interesting and nice to tackle in different ways, not just sci-fi, which we love as well, but um, thinking about our own futures and the future of our land as a bit like we were talking about earlier and just futures in all sorts of different contexts. And that's been a really nice thing to do, despite the fact that we're so uncertain about our future just now. I think most of the groups have responded really well to that and will carry on looking at that for the rest of the month. I loved a report from the Grass Market group who wrote in to tell us that they spent part of their session this week reading Curiosity and then deciding whether they were the cats or the dogs. <laughs> no names. <laughs> no names. And I didn't get an end result of how many cats or how many dogs we had, but certainly it seemed that they had a really good discussion or debate between the cats and the dogs. Um, we had one participant say that it was such a joy to be connected with women across Scotland who she'd never met before. So, and that was in one of the public creative writing groups. If you fancy joining that creative writing group, we're gonna add another one this week. So just check out the newsletter for details about how to join in there. But this week we've also had new groups coming up led by our team at Craig Miller. We've had the Ullapool group meeting. We've had our Bethany Christian Trust group get back online, which is just a joy to see those participants getting together with groups that they know, with people that they know, and their leaders. So it's been a real, real joy for us to watch some of our in-person groups come online and get together in places that we didn't think would happen. So that's been really positive too. And we've been working hard behind the scenes with some of the other organisations that we generally work with where our groups meet in person and we're hoping that our Scottish Poetry Library group and our Glasgow Women's Library group 
her National Library of Scotland group and a group at Stills will all be picking up again shortly over the next few weeks and those groups are all open and so you would be able to join in with one of them. Again, keep an eye on the newsletter and we will put all the information about the groups in there. You can find the newsletter on our website which is www.openbookreading.com and you can sign up for it there and it will be delivered to your inbox every week or you can just find the newsletter on the website itself. I think that's all from us this week. Thanks for having us in your ears. We can't wait to be chatting with each other and you next week. <laughs>